Welcome to the Make Your Mark podcast series, Breaking the Glass Ceiling, Women, Voting, and Equality, a WBDC interview series where influential women share their glass ceiling stories, how they fought for their voice and rights, became civically engaged, and changed the status quo. In today's launch episode, Breaking the Glass Ceiling, a conversation with Senator Tammy Duckworth. Listen in as our moderator, Melody Span Cooper, chairperson of the Midway Broadcasting Company, interviews Illinois Senator Tammy Duckworth on the importance of women in leadership and how civic and economic empowerment can help level the playing field. Hello, everybody. I'm Melody Span Cooper, chairman of Midway Broadcasting Corporation, proud supporter of the Women's Development uh, Business Development Center. I am so honored to be here for this special virtual meetup today. Uh, with one of my favorite legislators, and I'm sure one of yours as well, for a special program we're calling Raising Up the Vote, History Now and in the Future. It's powered by the Women's Business Development Center. And uh, the lady of the hour is our esteemed Illinois U.S. Senator Tammy Duckworth. Senator Duckworth, thank you so much for joining us. I just want to do uh, a, a abbreviated version of your bio because it is lengthy. <laughs> it is lengthy and well-deserved, but so that we can get right into a, a, what I hope will be a robust conversation. Um, U.S. Senator Tammy Duckworth is a Iraq War veteran, Purple Heart recipient, and former Assistant Secretary of the Department of Veteran Affairs who was among the first Army women to fly combat missions during Operation Iraqi Freedom. She attended college at the University of Hawaii and earned a Master's of Arts in International Affairs from George Washington University. Senator Duckworth moved to the great state of Illinois where she, got, uh, she pursued a, uh, her PhD in political science at Northern uh, Illinois University. And she also worked at the Rotary International there. In 2004, Senator Duckworth was deployed to Iraq as a Black Hawk helicopter pilot for the Illinois Army National Guard. And on November 12, 2004, something happened that would forever change her life. Her helicopter was hit by an RPG and she lost the, her legs and partial use of her right arm. Senator Duckworth spent the next year recovering at Walter Reed Army Medical Center where she quickly became an advocate for her fellow soldiers. After she recovered, she became the director of the Illinois Department of Veteran Affairs. In 2009, President Obama tapped her uh, to be the Assistant Secretary of Veteran Affairs. In 2012, Senator Duckworth was elected to Congress and served on the House Armed Services Committee and was an advocate for working families and job creation. She also passed a very important piece of legislation while there the Troop Talent Act to help returning veterans find jobs in the private sector. In the U.S. Senate, Senator Duckworth advocates for growing manufacturing jobs while supporting minority-owned small businesses and investing in communications that has been ignored far too long, in communities that have uh, been ignored far too long. In 2018, she did something that all women were so proud of after giving birth to and um, being the first woman senator to do so, uh, she secured a historic rule change uh, that allowed senators to bring their infant children to the floor of the Senate. She also serves on several influential committees, including the Small Business and Entrepreneurship 
Entrepreneurship Committee, which brings her to the Women Business Development Center to have this conversation today. I, I shortened, I shortened. Uh, my mom wrote that. My mama wrote that. It, it could go on forever. We can't start this conversation without talking about the 100th anniversary of the 19th Amendment granting women the right to vote. As one of the highest ranking public officials in the country, share with us what that means for you. Oh my gosh, it means everything to me. It means that we are getting to be more like the, the you know, the country that, that we were founded on with the values, you know, towards that more perfect union. We're, nowhere, we're not near that perfect union. We're not going to get there until we have equal representation, not in terms of gender, uh, but also in terms of diversity with, with yeah. people from all racial uh, backgrounds or all different identities uh, until the government of, our, of the people reflects the people, we truly are not going to reach that more perfect union that, that we can be. I mean, we're already a great nation, but, you know, women are still less than 25% of elected uh, office holders in the Senate and in the House. And we certainly, I mean, my gosh, in the Senate, we have more white men named John in the United <laughs> Senate States than we do have women of color. I mean, that's crazy, yeah. right? Um, uh, uh, so we, we need to do better. Um, yes. So I'm, I'm so proud of the 19th Amendment. I'm so proud that Illinois was one of the first to ratify it. Um, but frankly, we still have a long way to go and we have to get more people elected so that we have more voices um, in the boardrooms and in the halls of Congress that represents where people are in our country. Senator from Illinois. Madam President, I come to the floor today to honor some of the founders of our nation who all too often don't get their due. Founders whose gender or skin tone may not be represented on Mount Rushmore, but whose brilliance, whose resilience helped ensure that the, that the democracy we have today is strong and true. Because this democracy wasn't just built by George Washington or Thomas Jefferson. It wasn't perfected in the 18th century when the ink dried on the four original pages of the Constitution. It was shaped by women like Abigail Adams, who I named my first daughter after. It was strengthened by suffragists like Sojourner Truth, who worked tirelessly to better the country that had kept her in chains, who used her emancipation to call for freedom and a voice for all, women, black, white, you name it. It was formed by Illinoisans like Ida B. Wells, who demanded that women of color have a place at the forefront of the suffrage movement. It was forged by women like Mary Livermore, who channeled her frustration over women's inequality into action. Spearheading Chicago's first ever suffrage convention 150 years ago and marking Illinois as a leader in the fight for women's rights. Our democracy was sharpened by the group of Illinoisans who traveled to Washington, D.C. in 1913, joining thousands of other women in their march down Pennsylvania Avenue. Protesters who were vilified, berated, jostled, and tripped, and even jailed, but who withstood it all to call for a constitutional amendment giving women the right to vote. And this union was made more perfect when the 19th Amendment finally passed Congress 100 years ago today. These women raised their voices on the picket lines so we could make ours heard at the polls. They risked safety and security, withstood hypocrisy and overcame misogyny, refusing to stay silent so that their daughters and their daughters' daughters would inherit the democracy they deserved. For that, we are forever in their debt. But of course, every American's right to vote wasn't truly secured that day in 1919. 
nor was it secured later that week when Illinois became one of the first states to ratify the amendment. Or in 1965, when Lyndon B. Johnson picked up a pen and signed the Voting Rights Act into law. And it still is not secure today. Not when voter suppression tactics still block so many people of color from the ballot. When voter roll purges are still common and in some in power are still fighting to install modern day poll taxes. So we can't get complacent. What began at Seneca Falls continues with us today as it now falls to our generation to keep alive the work of yesterday's suffragists. To keep pushing for bills like the Voting Rights Advancement Act to ensure that bigoted state laws don't disenfranchise any American. It falls on us to keep fighting for that more perfect union, to keep making our voices heard, whether that's here on the Senate floor or anywhere else, so that finally, someday soon, every American can make theirs heard at the ballot box. Thank you. Listen, you've got a master's in international affairs and a PhD in political science. I would think that's a great recipe to becoming an attorney, right? Well, well listen, my, my PhD is actually in, in, in health and human services now. Okay. I, switched, I switched after I started. But um, now, what was the pivot for you? I never wanted to be in politics. I thought I was going to join the um, Foreign Service or the Peace Corps. Um, I loved my job at Rotary International. I love not-for-profits that do um, humanitarian aid and, and do social service programs. Um, uh, I got shot down. That's what turned. That's what turned things around. I got wounded in Iraq, and all I wanted to do was serve my nation. And I met. I met two people of consequence. I met um, uh, Dick Durbin, uh, and I met Barack Obama, who had just been elected to the United States Senate four months prior. And the two of them gave me a new mission in life. And they said, if you think that this nation is not doing right by military men and women, then you need to run for office. And they encouraged me to run and mentored me. And that's how I got into politics. I never thought I would be in politics. Um, wow. But, but you know what's interesting, Melody, is most women in politics stories are that. They're, men generally like become law attorneys because they want to run for office and then they run for office. But if you talk to most of the women who ran, they had a whole other career tra trajectory and they got mad about something. Wow. They got pissed off about something that wasn't yeah. good, right. And then they run for office. Think about all the way. Think about Kara Mosley Braun. They were doing something else. I got yeah. a question for you later in our conversation that's right there too. It's yeah. right there. Before we get there though, your trajectory is like no other. You, you've had a stellar career as a veteran, a well-respected politician and every step of the way you were driving policy, passing legislation and being a change agent for causes you believe in. What is your best advice on how women can demand equity at the seat of opportunity? Well, it's about not getting pushed around and, and, and it's about believing in yourself. I mean, not a day goes by when I don't wake up and, and have imposter syndrome, right? And feel like, oh my gosh, I'm a, you know, I sit and I sit in the Democratic caucus and I'm sitting there, um, you know, and I hold, I mean, the seat that I hold in the Senate is, is Kara Mosley Braun and Barack Obama's seat. I hold the seat of giants. And, and for me, you know, you have imposter syndrome, but you can't listen to that little voice in your head that second guesses you and your power. You have to, come and say, hey, you know what? I can do this. If they can do this, I can do this. And you don't let yourself get pushed around. It happens to the best of us. I remember sitting in the House um, um, at a meeting with Democrats and Speaker Pelosi uh, you know, asked us all to talk, comment on some issue. I don't remember what it was, but we made a comment and, and one woman made a comment, one of the female representatives made a comment 
And everybody just sort of nodded. And then like three people down, a male person made the same comment. People were like, oh, wow, that's really interesting. And, and Leader Pelosi said, well, that's great. But she said it first. Yes. And she really taught us that. And so yeah. we have to believe in ourselves and not. Yeah, and own it, right? Yeah. Right. Women make up 25% of the U.S. Senate. That's one fourth of its entire body. Are women more likely to drive issues of gender and racial equity in our communities than our male counterparts? And if so, why is that so? It's because we live it. I think we are, and it's not to say that there are not allies out there, right? Um, uh, we all can be allies in an, in an area that is not our expertise, but we all live our reality and we live our lives and we live our community and we bring that to the table. That's why we need greater diversity in the United States Senate and in our offices. So a good example is um, when I became a new mom, not a young mom, because I had my kids at 46 and 50. So I always say I'm not a new mom, not a young one. Um, and I started breastfeeding. And, and even though I had been in office before and, and I thought I was a very much, you know, uh, right at the forefront on, on women's issues and women's rights, I didn't understand the problems that working moms face with trying to breastfeed and express breast milk when you're traveling until I had to do it myself. That's what led me to write the FAM Act, which requires all airports to have um, lactation rooms for women who are traveling so that they can express breast milk. I was unaware of that until I had to live that reality. And so that's why we need greater representation. Not to say that I don't have great allies, and men signed on to that, but I had to live it to recognize the problem that was there. So until we have black women and brown women and transgendered women and, and, and people from, from poor communities and rich communities all represented, the realities of the lived lives of the lived experiences doesn't get represented in the halls of power. That's why I think it's so important for women to be at the table too. Our lens is so much different. It's so much broader, right? Because right. of the responsibilities that we have uh, as mothers, as sometimes head of households, right? Um, that we we bring a certain, a, a different lens that is so important right now that makes the conversation and everything we do so much more robust, right? And so much more, we, we think broader uh, because we're at the table. Conversation becomes better and more robust. I, I think it's just so dynamic. So we talk about that in context of you being a, a politician, uh, a government stakeholder, how can women individually who, who may not be in politics, right? Oh, and, and, and you think about uh, women who are in the community now and just really taking leaderships of organizations, how can they use their power to influence gender and racial equity in our communities? Well, I, I think there's two things that you can do is you can yourself strive for more and not talk yourself out of things. Emily's List is an organization that helps women run for office. Sure. Um, it, stands, it stands for early money is like yeast, Emily's List. Um, they say that women on average have to be asked seven times to run for office before they finally say yes. Whereas men look in the mirror when they get up right. and say, why am I not a senator? Yeah. So you yourself have to strive for that, but you also have to mentor others. And, and I get into invited to speak at a lot of places where I'm talking about mentoring other women and mentoring uh, folks. But I also say that by assuming a leadership role, you also need to mentor the young men because it's important for young men to see women and to see, and, and especially for young white men to see women of color in these leadership yeah. roles and see how well they do because yeah. you have to mentor everybody. 
You yeah. yourself may not have been had the benefit of great mentorship and had to fight your own way to break through that glass ceiling because those mentors were not there. Mm-hmm. I was very fortunate. I had I had mentors. I had Dick Durbin. I had Barack Obama. But if you got there and you didn't have those mentors, you had to be that mentor for those below you. I mean, you have to focus on the women and the women of color in particular, but you also don't forget about the men because, because you can't let them reinforce the negative stereotypes that already exist. You've got to show them women of color can be powerful and are good leaders and, in fact, are better leaders in many ways because they have a much broader, as you said, you know, field of view. So the Women's Business Development Center is an organization whose DNA, of course, is cultivating the talents of of women who aspire to own businesses. It's not what they do. It's just who they are, right, as an organization. You presently serve on the Small Business and Entrepreneurship Committee. Tell us how your work there has benefited small business owners in the state of Illinois? Well, I've worked on several things. Um, I am very focused on the SBA's microloan program. It offers loans of um, $50,000 or less through nonprofit lenders. Uh, Women-owned businesses and especially small businesses and small businesses of color, Mm -hmm. uh, they tend to get their money, their capital from not-for-profit lenders or small community banks, um, and, and also Black-owned banks, right? In yeah. Chicago, right now, we only have a single Black-owned bank. We need, we need more. So I've been working a lot to promote these uh, non-traditional lenders, these not-for-profit lenders, these uh, minority-owned banks, so that we can get a- access to capital can grow for small businesses. Because in Illinois, 95% of our employers in the entire state are small businesses. They are the lifeblood of Illinois' economy. And Mm -hmm. and small businesses, especially businesses of color and veteran-owned businesses and women-owned businesses, tend to hire more people of color and hire more women and hire more veterans. So supporting their success actually helps make as more successful as a state and as a business community. Um, And so I actually wrote a bill called the Microloan Program Enhancement Bill. It would improve this microloan program in several ways. It would increase the total amount that lenders can give to borrowers each year. It increases the amount of technical assistance funding so that lenders lenders can get from the SBA. It eliminates a lot of the rules that slows down the flow of funding. Um, The 155th rule is an example. Um, that slows down funding um, uh, and technical assistance from the SBA. It eliminates that so that you can actually get money and funding and technical assistance out sooner and more of it. And I'm also committed to increasing the loan terms from eight, six years to eight years um, and create incentives for lending to rural areas, you know, economically challenged areas, and all of that. Um, so those are just ongoing issues that I'm, that I'm working on, specifically on the Small Business um, Committee. Oh, that's great. And that's dynamic. How can women find out more about that, Senator Duckworth? Well, absolutely reach out to my office, but also to your local um, chambers of commerce and especially your minority chambers of commerce, the um, Black Chamber of Commerce, um, mm-hmm. and a lot of the other organizations um, uh, can, can provide you that, that help. But my office can certainly put you in touch with the um, right organizations as well. What can you share during this time after COVID? I mean, this... Uh, Uh, the world is a different place because of this pandemic, right? And I went through the recession of 2008 and 2009, and I'm not kidding. It changed me as a businesswoman. It changed my business, my outlook on my business, right? And then not even... 10 years later, it seems, just a little over 10 years later, we were faced with this pandemic. And from the time that I went through it until now, there have been so many new businesses that have onboarded, right? So many young entrepreneurs who find themselves devastated right now. 
not only just mentally trying to figure out, you know, how they overcome this, but this pandemic, I, I saw something in the in the news today, Senator Duckworth, that 40% of small businesses in San Francisco are not coming back, right? They just won't be able to return. What can you share with uh, small business owners uh, right now uh, about uh, the aftermath of this during this time uh, in our country as small business owners? Yeah, well, I mean, one thing that you didn't have to face uh, the last economic downturn that you're facing now is you actually suddenly have to become a healthcare expert. When you sign up to start a business and when you become a small business owner, you sign up for all of the headaches of, you know, payroll and <laughs> and getting customers and, and competing and finding capital. But at no point did you sign up to be on the front lines of a global pandemic. All of these small businesses are now. And so what I say to them is, you know, there's some, there, we have to do better and we have to support them and businesses better. That's why with the, um, the COVID uh, relief packages that we're fighting for, um, I'm fighting very hard, and so is Dick Durbin, uh, all Democrats are, for more money into the Paycheck Protection Program um, for specifically small businesses that would be lent out through uh, non-traditional lenders tied to a loan forgiveness program so that those loans are actually forgiven um, uh, as long as you bring your employees back to work. And that's the goal is for you to stay in business, give you enough money that you can survive this and then bring people back to work and then not hit you immediately with now you owe money and you got to repay this. We should give you a, we basically need to write off these loans mm -hmm. because we have to look at it as an investment in our national economy. Right. But we have to make that loan forgiveness, uh, even the application process easier than it is. Uh, the Department of the Treasury wrote crazy complicated ways <laughs> system yeah. and then lots of bureaucracies on how you would actually even apply for it as it exists. We have to streamline that. Mm -hmm. um, we need more money in the EDIL program, the Economic Disaster Injury Loan Program that is just outright grant money. Right now, the first $10,000 of that is grant money to help you to just survive the, to the end of the month. Yeah, um, uh, you know, and, and we need to provide more money in that program that is outright grant money so that you can survive it. And so those are some of the things that we can do. We can, again, as I said, put more money into the SBA's various programs that go directly to microloans, that go directly to community not-for-profits that help businesses to survive. And then we as a nation have to figure out this testing issue with, for COVID testing. We need to make it widespread and low cost or free because the mm -hmm. economy is never going to get moving again if we can't get all of our workers tested yeah. and, and provide them with paid health care, paid medical leave um, that is not on the back of employers so that people, if they are tested and they come up positive, that they can actually afford to stay home for 14 days and get better or live or, or stay yeah. quarantined. And, and that should not be on the back of our employers, bottom mm -hmm. line. Yeah. Um, and so are some of the things that we can do when it specifically with this with with the COVID-19 pandemic. Yeah. And I'll just share as tough as it is, business ebbs and it flows. Right. Mm -hmm. And so it is at these times that we are really made. So for all of our entrepreneurs, you got to stay encouraged. You have to do what Senator Duckworth says there. There is help from the from the government, you know, really explore those lending opportunities and those rent opportunities that, that get you over. And don't get so bogged down into, you know, the negative thoughts of, of, of defeat or loss. Uh, really breathe life now more than ever. You know, just bunker down and, and vision and, and really feed your dreams and your aspirations and your business because it is right here in the valley which we 
become who we are as business people. Trust me, Senator Duckworth, I'm not kidding. After 2008, 2009, I just could not even imagine, you know, uh, coming back from that, right? And, yeah. and what it did, it actually prepared me for this season. It really did. So, and we can get through this, we can, we can survive. Want to pivot one more time with you. I see you, you are a woman, woman of color. You are a person with disability. You check a lot of boxes, right? And so when you stand there and you're advocating uh, in this exclusive club, that you belong in the most exclusive club in America, right? The U.S. Senate. You have a wide depth of empathy because you see from so many lenses, right? Tell me where do you, how, how do you decide? Where, where do you pull that from as a leader with so many different ways to look at issues? How does Senator Tammy Duckworth come to her, her true self, her true legislative beliefs when these matters come up? Yeah. Well, I mean, there, there is who I am as a person and, and my personal beliefs and, and my personal experiences, you know, whether it's um, my dad losing his job in his 50s and me uh, ending up on food stamps and, and hungry. And, you know, there were times when school breakfast and school lunch were the only meals I ate because we had no money at the end of the, you know, at the end of the month when the food stamps ran out. So there's my personal belief in, in social safety nets and in the opportunities I've received in this country. But it's also looking to those who have lifted me up even before I knew I needed to be lifted up. The fact that I can be a United States Senator and roll across those marble floors of, of the United States Capitol is because 30 years ago, people with disability literally crawled up the steps of the Capitol wow. demanding the passage of the ADA. Right. The, the fact that when my parents got together, they could not have been married when my dad's homestead. I mean, they, my dad was overseas, but had he wanted to marry my mom in his homestead of Virginia, he couldn't have because we, they were biracial couple before Loving v. Virginia passed. I am not a black woman. I, I could never understand or live the experience of, of um, people in this committee from the black community with the inherent racism and brutality that exists against black people in particular. But but the work that John Lewis, you know, my, my former colleague did to lift up this nation and, and with me with it before I even knew that I need to be lifting up. So looking back to that heritage from all of those people who came before me, whether it was women suffragettes, whether it was people fighting for civil rights, whether it was the people fighting for disability rights, whether it was the women who fought, you know, to be able to serve in the military, who yeah. broke that ceiling before I joined. All of yeah. those things are wells of inspiration. Looking to them for the truth and the work that needs to be done. I stand on their shoulders and someday I hope somebody else will stand on my shoulders um, and we're just all part of that link, but you can't yeah. forget where we came from yeah. and, and try to be true to that. So for me, that's, that's what's in my mind when I decide what I want to do in the Senate is who, my own lived experiences, but also the lived experiences of people who came before me. That's powerful. Thank you for sharing. Last question. Last week, uh, you participated in the Democratic uh, National Convention. I saw you there. Uh, and you were on the short list of, of candidates to become vice president, right? Uh, and while the WBDC is a 501c3 and we can't really talk politics, we do have a politician here, right? So I wanted to know uh, what that felt, felt like. I mean, I mean, imagine that, right? Yeah. You, uh, you, uh, when you look at the lens in, in hindsight, you've seen the trajectory of your career, right? And then you uh, are on a short list yeah. to become a vice presidential candidate. 
share with us that experience and how it felt and how you felt being a part, especially at this time of, of the convention last, uh, last week. Oh my gosh, I was so proud. You know what, it, it was, I, I, will, I will be honest, the vetting process for vice president was brutal. Um, and I was very fortunate to make it all the way to the final selection um, and had my personal meeting with Vice President Biden. That was definitely, you know, it's a process. You just go through it. But it was so exciting. I was so proud because so many of those, the women, the other women were my girlfriends. So Michelle <laughs> Lujan Grisham, the governor of New Mexico, yeah. and I were freshmen in the house together. We're class of 2012. Catherine Cortez Masto and Kamala Harris and I were freshman senators together. So we, you know, it's, and, and Karen Bass, yeah. I mean, you know, we were all like colleagues in the house. So, I mean, so for me, it was like, it was like a girlfriend's reunion. I was just so proud that the Democratic Party had over a dozen well-qualified women, the rainbow of color of women uh, who could all be vice president of the United States. This is sure. not something the other party can claim to. Yeah, yeah. It was just exciting and, and it was just fun to yeah. to have my name mentioned among some of these amazing kick-ass women, you know, yeah. and to be able to actually talk to my friends and, and chat. It was just really exciting. It was just an honor to even be mentioned in the same breath as both. You know, Kamala, actually, we the women senators get together fairly often and Kamala yeah. cooks dinner for us often. Yeah. She is, she's a vegan and she cooks amazing. Wow. Indian food, um, South Asian food. So yeah, um, yeah, <laughs> that's amazing. And I understand there's like 120 women of color running for for Congress uh, this time. That has to make you proud. That's yeah. amazing, right? It's that, fantastic. Well, yeah. but I'm going to give you I'm going to give you a really bad statistic. So when we uh, helped the nation of Afghanistan rewrite write a new constitution after the war in Afghanistan started and they became a new nation, we made them write into their new constitution a requirement that 25% of their, um, of their, their legislative body had to be women. Up until recently, women were only 22% of the legislative body of the United States. So wow. Afghanistan had higher, had better representation percentage-wise in the United States. So, yeah, you know, this is great. We have all these women, but until we get to 51%, yeah, until we have fewer men named John in the United States Senate, there yet. Yeah, and, it, and that would be more reflective of our country, right? 51% women, I love that. You have been a joy to talk to, Senator Duckworth. This is the longest time that we've ever shared, just talking one-on-one, -on -one, but I, I learned so much. Thank you for the work that you're doing to empower women and minorities in the business sector, it is important. It is so very, very important. Uh, and, and we appreciate your, your insights on that and your work in that and all that you do for veterans for, for just representing Illinois the way that you do. So uh, I, I wanna give a couple of shout outs to my dear sister, Hetty Ratner, uh, who is just, that's my sister. I, I call my sister from another mister. <laughs> And then Carol McDougall and Amelia, uh, who runs the Women Business Development Center, and my good friend Roxanne Ward, the entire team there. Thank you all so much for allowing uh, me to do this with Senator Duckworth today. It's raising up the vote. History, now, future. It's powered by the Women's Business Development Center. For those of you who are watching and are new to the Women's Business Development Center, what is wrong with you? Log on to their website and find out what's happening. If you know young women, who are interested in business, 
and are looking for resources and a great networking and a sisterhood, this is the organization for you. Please check them out. And until next time, hopefully we'll be able to get back to where we can hug and touch one another. But until next time, we thank you. We appreciate you so much. And uh, bye for now. Bye. Thanks for listening to today's conversation. If you'd like to learn more about the WBDC's Raising Up the Vote campaign and about the power of voting to drive women's economic empowerment, please go to our website, wbdc.org backslash raising up the vote. We hope you will join us in this important effort to raise up the vote. This movement reminds us that we can and should and indeed must pick up our banner today in 2020 and continue to enact necessary change as we participate in this year's election and other elections to come. Make sure to look for more conversations from Make Your Mark podcast series, Breaking the Glass Ceiling, Women Voting Inequality. And don't forget to join the movement at hashtag raise up the vote. And finally, get out there and vote on November 3rd. The Women's Business Development Center is a nationally recognized leader in the field of women's economic development. We're committed to supporting and accelerating business development and growth, targeting women and serving all diverse business owners to strengthen their impact in and impact on the economy. For additional information about the WBDC, please go to wbdc.org. And thank you for listening.